It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. So President Trump has decided we have a new scandal, Spygate, which we're going to talk about today on the show. But Spygate just sounds like the wrong name for this whole controversy around an informant Brushing up against people in the Trump campaign, so we maybe, have to think. Maybe of a new we name. need our secret uh, intel operation name generator. We need to one. come up with a better name, like for Rampant this. Dinosaur, Arrogant <laughs> Giraffe. What about Molegate? Molegate or Looky Loo Gate? How about Spy Gate Gate? Because <laughs> this is all just meta anyway. Brush Up Gate, Coffee Boy Gate. Well, Quinta I, had a good one. Yeah, I like Quinta's suggestion. <laughs> what was it? This the X Spy Z Affair. The X Spy Z Affair. That's a good one. I can guarantee you when all is said and done, this spy game. How about Le Affaire du Helper? <laughs> it's, yeah, <laughs> it's not even going to be that sexy when it's no, all told. <laughs> there is nothing <laughs> sexy about this one. There's nothing sexy about Steph Helper. Have you met Steph Helper? Yeah, nothing <laughs> sexy about him. Oh, oh Sorry. cruel, cruel. Oh, he's, he's 73. I mean, you're a nice man. Such a mean podcast. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Spygate edition. We're going with Spygate. Titles. Well, you know, it's really, it's, it fits nicely on the screen. Okay. The iPod, or the, what Two you short, now. sharp syllables. Yes, Spygate. How about the spy gate, gate. gate? The gate gate. Gate gate. Well, you know, there's gates at the White House, so I guess it fits. I don't know. Uh, I'm here in the Jungle Studio. This is Shane Harris. Did I introduce myself? Did I say hello? No. I didn't. I'm Shane Harris, name-generating reporter. Uh, I am here with my friends, Tamara kaufman Wittes. Hello, Tamara. Hello, Shane. And we are without Ben and Susan because they've fled to scenic Austin this week. So we are joined by two very special guests. Uh, Suzanne Maloney is here of the Brookings Institution and leading sayer, knower, purveyor of all thoughts on Iran. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Shane. We're very happy you're here. Thanks for having me. And Paul Rosenzweig is here uh, now with the R Street Institute Editor, editor, co-editor, founder of Lawfare. Uh, you were like president of the I'm creation a, for Lawfare. I was. I, I was not a founder. I, I'm. I don't. Emperor know what, of Lawfare. You're like OG Lawfare, though. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm. I am pretty OG. I've yeah. been around for a long time. For sure. For sure. Uh, and Paul has held uh, many other fine, fun positions, including we have an actual live former special counsel investigator Woo-hoo! right here in the house. You're going to explain all this nonsense to us. It's Hi, be Shane. Good. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> On the show this week, President Trump orders the Justice Department to investigate the Russia investigation. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo details the administration's strategy for dealing with Iran. You can't see my air quotes here. Strategy. <laughs> and Trump appears to say that North Korea might not need to get rid of its nuclear weapons after all. Um, so let's start with Gategate. Um, President Trump tweeted uh, over the weekend that he was ordering or he was, he was demanding, demanding. Hereby. Demanding, hereby demanding. Hereby demanding it would soon order uh, that the Justice Department uh, launch an investigation to find out whether there was politically motivated spying on his campaign. We don't have to discuss too much the backstory of this because we talked about that last week. Uh, with what Devin Nunes has been up to, et cetera. Um, 
But we had this extraordinary uh, kind of spectacle uh, of the Can president. Can I just ask, like, when you go through the inauguration, you finish saying the oath, you go back into the Capitol Rotunda, does the Secret Service then sit down and say, okay, Mr. President, here's the hereby that you oh, get yeah. to use the because hereby. you're president? Yeah, he likes to use it. He hereby did it. Yeah. Um, so as we all heard him do it, uh, Paul, let me start with you. This is obviously, so I feel like we have to ask this question every time there is some extraordinary move or hereby from the president, which is how far over the line, uh, uh, do people feel this has gone? He's ordering an investigation into an investigation of his campaign. Should we be reading it this way? Or is this perhaps not as dire a circumstance as as some people have painted it to be? You know, as, as with all things with respect to President Trump, the answer is we don't effing know. <laughs> and it's really hard to tell. I, from the Department of Justice's perspective, you know, when reduced from a tweet to a, a written piece of paper, it's clearly a directive from the president. And as I'm sure we've talked about on this podcast and on every other podcast we've ever done for lawfare. The president is the chief executive. So he does have this nominal authority to direct uh, resources at the Department of Justice. The problem is, is that no president has ever used them to order an investigation of his own Department of Justice or an investigation of his political opponents. So those are norms. They're not laws. And he's just breaking them left and right. It's as if uh, they don't exist anymore, and he's kind of daring the world to to step in and stop him. Uh, you know, the day that he pardons himself will be another such day. You know, uh, uh, so I would say, uh, for now, not a crisis. Uh, the you know the deflection to the already open Inspector General's report um, is putting a huge amount of weight on the Inspector General. I mean, you like extra work or putting weight on the IG to come up with some definitive conclusion that would satisfy put, Putting this. weight on him, no matter what he does, he's going to dissatisfy somebody. Either he's going to declare the entire investigation flawed, in which case, uh, you know, Trump's going to declare victory and everybody's going to be fired. Or he's going to say, in far more likelihood, no, no, this is all normal operating procedure. If we find out that there's a, a potential Russian infiltration of a of a of a campaign, we're going to investigate that because that's what counterintelligence people do. Mm -hmm. uh, and when he says that, you know, the president is not going to accept that. <laughs> so I don't know what he'll do then. Fire the inspector general? Right? Uh, that's my guess. Okay. So I, I think that there are two distinctions here that keep getting lost in the the public discussion of the last few days activities. One is the distinction between a counterintelligence investigation and a criminal investigation. Okay, that that what the FBI was engaged in at that point during 2016 with the relative to the Trump campaign was a counterintelligence investigation about Russians, the Russian government infiltrating an American political campaign. So there was a target which is the Russian government, mm -hmm. right? And somehow President Trump can't uh, acknowledge that that might be legitimate because the fact of a Russian intervention appears to cast out on the legitimacy of his victory. And so, number one, he paints it as though his campaign is the target of the investigation, which at that time it was not. Um, 
And then he says it's all illegitimate. So that's the first distinction that gets lost. The second distinction, though, is one that we've talked about on the show and on a number of occasions with respect to how President Trump is playing his role here, which is the distinction between the legal argumentation or the legal debate that's going on and the messaging debate that's going on. And it seems very, very clear to me that whatever happens with the inspector general uh, investigation, Trump's already won the messaging debate uh, because we now have an investigation. And even if we all know going in that there's no there there and that this is legitimate counterintelligence activity and that it followed procedure, let's just assume we all knew that already. Let's assume the IG eventually concludes that and issues some kind of report to that effect. The, the fact is that every news organization in the country is covering the fact that this is being investigated, which means that it's an open question. And that means Trump has already cast doubt on the legitimacy of the FBI's activities and cast doubt, therefore, on whatever the now criminal investigation comes up with. You're, you're, you're getting at a point which is... Um is really fundamental about the difference between investigating presidents and investigating any other person, which is that presidents have a capability uh, to activate public discussion and discourse in ways that are completely foreign uh, to any other criminal defendant uh, in the world. It's the much. bully pulpit. It's the bully pulpit. Deployed in a very special right, I way. Mean, I, I, as Shane said at the outset, I did the Clinton investigation and President Clinton and his team successfully um, demonized Ken Starr, who, yeah, whatever you think of how he conducted that investigation, there's lots to say that's bad and good, and Ben wrote a book about it. But, you know, he went into that investigation as the Republican with the highest degree of probity and reputation in America. Uh, he, he was literally hired to read Bob Packwood's diaries for all the dirty stuff and report same to the Senate without disclosing what it was and make a judgment dirty not dirty so you know the presidents always have this my my wife uh, back in the clinton days she said you know the star investigative team was playing baseball and they could turn a double play on a dime and clinton he was playing football and running over him and that's exactly what's happening now is you know trump is playing football and Mueller and the Department of Justice, they're playing baseball. And it remains to be seen whether football wins or baseball wins. And probably it's football. Suzanne, I'm curious what you think about – I wonder how a lot of this looks to the outside world, right? I mean we're looking at this very much from the American political perspective and trying to game out what the president's doing and how is Mueller going to react. And I mean sort of like we're, we're looking at it maybe like a using a sporting analogy and you know, like what, what play each team is going to run. But I wonder, like, do you, particularly for you as somebody who spends their, their time thinking a lot about, you know, what's going on in foreign capitals, are, are foreign governments looking at this and seeing something to mock and to be disappointed in? Or are they seeing something that, oh, no, that looks a lot like how we would do it in our country? I mean, I realize I'm, I'm sort of trying to now put Trump on some sort of spectrum of tyranny, I guess. But well, I mean, what is the reaction, do you think, to, when they're seeing us, you know, uh, this, the, 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 this spectacle of a president ordering an investigation into an investigation of himself, which is a rather extraordinary thing. 
Well, I was thinking back to um, the Clinton investigation simply because I happened to be in Iran when some of the reporting came out uh, and certainly when some of uh, the football that the Clinton administration engaged in uh, took place. And, you know, there is a, a sense of kind of cognitive, cognitive dissonance around both the fact that this sort of mess can evolve in a government that most of the rest of the world tends to put on either a pedestal or demonize in in a fashion that suggests omnipotence, um, but also the, the the sort of you know surreal factor that you have such a sense of disarray. My guess is that most of the rest of the world, including governments who probably watch this closely. Have, have lost track of the actual storyline yeah. here with respect to the Trump administration. And I think that's probably part of the strategy is that nobody remembers really where this all began. And by the time it ends, nobody will really understand anything other than whatever bottom line Trump might tweet. Yeah, that feel, I mean, I have to say as somebody covering it every day, it feels like that as well. I mean, we, I, feel, I think I find myself sort of losing the thread sometimes. And, it, and it's, it's something, a conclusion I've reached about not just this particular episode, but about others is that just putting aside for a second the actual, you know, merits of the argument uh, that Trump is making, it seems to me that it does serve a very useful political purpose for him to keep the anger over this and the debate over it alive and not resolved, right? I mean, it's, it's, and, and if we, we've talked a lot about Devin Nunes and sort of this strategy before on the podcast of kind of running these plays into the midst of the Mueller investigation and sort of waving his hands around and saying, look over here, look over here, and nothing, nothing really come to anything. I mean, you know, calmer heads prevail, the Justice Department sort of shuts him down, gives him a few documents, he goes away, but he always comes back. And it seems like it's not so much about the substance of the argument. It's about having an argument and creating a distraction. And you got to keep doing that. One of the things, though, that, that that's about is for the average citizen, it's about the impenetrability of law. Uh, you know, fundamentally, you know, questions about, you know, collusion, right? That's not a crime. Conspiracy to violate some other, yeah, that's a crime. And explaining that kind of detail is something that we as professionals, I as a professional, have done all my life. But none of my clients ever understand it, much less the general public to whom I've tried to explain why, you know, this particular activity is an offense. It's simple for murder, rape, and robbery. But after you get past that, the degree to which the complexities of the law mask the moral judgments that it it embodies is really quite significant, and that's kind of a fundamental criticism of the Anglo-American legal project. Hmm. Not it's not a criticism of of Trump. Yeah. Oh wow! Now I'm even more depressed. But <laughs> I I feel like there's also a dimension here where that's a sort of common uh, component of the populist political playbook, uh, which is. You know, okay, public trust in institutions and in the political establishment is low. Okay, that's an enabling factor for the rise of these kinds of populist figures. And that makes it possible for these populist figures, when they are subject to investigation, to delegitimize the investigators who are, you know, uh, public institutions. Um, but why? Why is that the play for them rather than a cover up or rather than, you know, changing the subject or something? Why do they go directly at the legitimacy of the investigation? Um, because as 
as you guys both just noted, it mobilizes their political base. And their concern is to is to kind of hold their own political alliance together, their party, their coalition in parliament, whatever it may be. So for Trump, it's congressional Republicans. He needs them on side with him and he needs to maintain them unified as a block in support of him. And so far, he's managed to do that by keeping the base so riled up that if those members of Congress aren't loyal to him on this issue, the base will punish them. So it's mobilizing the base as a threat against congressional Republicans, I think. That's how he sees he's going to avoid impeachment. And it seems like that's, I I think you're right. I mean, that seems politically the calculation that he's made all along. And I think we've talked about this, you know, I've lost count of how many times, that you know, if you're if you're talking about, is there sort of a, an, an you know an end of days scenario for the Trump presidency? It all hinges on Republicans in Congress, right? I noticed that he changed the background of his Twitter profile to him standing with the congressional leadership and the Oval, all giving the thumbs up. Yeah, it's. I mean, so there's an eye on the midterms here, and there's also been an interesting kind of this week in the wake of this new outrage, right? This new transgression by the president. There's been some critiques. Um, among the Democratic Party watchers, journalists, and and progressive commentators about why congressional Democrats are not expressing more anger and opposition to this. And the fact is, it doesn't mobilize the Democratic Party's base, uh, the Russia investigation, and it certainly doesn't mobilize the center, which the Democrats need in order to do well in the midterms. Most voters in the United States don't care about the Russia investigation, but the Republican base does care. Yeah. I care. Oh, speaking of Twitter, <laughs> did you see the <laughs> opinion my... today? What is it? Oh, uh, President Trump cannot block people. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. interesting. Everybody go that... follow the president. You do not want to miss this. Yeah, oh. you cannot be blocked. <laughs> it is a public forum. Um, and no matter what right. you spew back at him, he can't block you. So but but you Seb Gorka still can. <laughs> well, Seb Gorka is not the president. In fact, he's nobody right now. Thankfully. Ooh. <laughs> wow. Yeah, we, yeah, we can talk about Seb Gorka. We, we like him on this we podcast need to talk as a about topic. Seb Gorka. Sure do. Uh, but let's talk now about Mike Pompeo. So Secretary Pompeo uh, had a big speech at the Heritage Foundation uh, this week detailing the administration's I guess we could say strategy or plan for dealing with Iran now that we have decided not to participate in the uh, Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, which we talked about uh, last week, I think. Um, So, Suzanne, it struck me that basically the strategy that Pompeo might just be outlining here is message to Iran, do whatever we tell you or else. And it's not really much of a negotiation. No, I think it was interesting that Pompeo left the door open in a negotiation, that he, in fact, described um, the administration as seeking a treaty relationship with Iran, even as he laid out criteria, really preconditions for any kind of an arrangement with Iran that would be impossible for the current government to meet. It's essentially full wholesale capitulation or there's no deal whatsoever. Um, and the idea that the Iranians are going to come excitedly to the table to negotiate with a, a government that has just walked away from a deal to which the Iranians were complying essentially in full, despite all the other bad behavior they engage in around the region, um, is, is just plainly ludicrous. So I think it's, you know, it's worth noting that the, the Trump administration wants to at least present the, the image of a, a government that's seeking a conversation 
um, but fundamentally has zero interest in real diplomacy with Iran. And, and even more clear from the speech was the fact that I think the Secretary Pompeo really doesn't care much about what the Europeans may think about this quote-unquote strategy. Uh, and he didn't even mention China and Russia, which were, of course, critical players in, in any of the diplomacy around Iran. So this is very much a go-it-alone approach. So, is that, so that suggests that there's some, there's some intentionality behind doing it this way, right? It's not just that the Trump administration has completely unrealistic expectations about what a deal could look like and is offering up a potential deal that Iran can never meet. It's we're going to offer this knowing full well that Iran will never be able to comply with this. So what is the true intention behind the kind of the facade of wanting to renegotiate? Well, you know, this is a strategy that actually the Bush administration toyed with a little bit. Put something on the table that you know the Iranians can't take, and and then fundamentally you come out smelling better than they do, um, and they'll have a more difficult time explaining it at home. Um, I think for for Trump and for Pompeo, the game plan is to simply apply as much pressure on Iran, primarily economically, through these financial sanctions, which will essentially force the rest of the world to choose between doing business in and with the United States or doing business in or with anyone in Iran or anyone who touches anything to do with Iran. They're really far-reaching and they um, can be quite insidious in terms of forcing companies and countries to make that kind of a choice. Um, I think the conviction is that this pressure will either prompt the Iranians to make some fundamental change in their policies or embrace the possibilities of coming back to the table with their tail between their legs. It's not wholly inconceivable that something like that could happen over time. The Iranians have, in fact, reversed course in 1988, deciding to embrace a ceasefire with Saddam Hussein after insisting on uh, nothing other than wholesale victory. There were episodes in both 2003 and, of course, the decision to come to the table again in 2013 after really tough U.S. and multilateral sanctions um, came, in fact, you know, over the, the pre predictions of many people that the Iranians would never, in fact, bend. So that's one option, and I think the administration would be very happy to see either change or diplomacy from the Iranians after a period of pressure. I think the other avenue that they see as a potential forward path for this strategy is simply that the Iran system is thrown into chaos by the economic pressure, by the manifest dissatisfaction of its population. And that produces some sort of change. The, the hitch there is, of course, change is rarely linear in Iran, and it's almost never moving in a positive fashion. Right, right. Paul, go ahead. So I, I just wanted to put on the table uh, another incident from last week that that really puzzles me, uh, That and it relates indirectly to Iran, but directly to Iran, which was the decision of the president to relieve ZTE of the sanctions uh, and penalties that had been imposed upon it. And those penalties and sanctions fundamentally at their core were about ZTEs violating uh, sanctions against trading with North Korea and fill in the blank, Iran, right? So, 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 here we have Secretary Pompeo saying we're going to impose these crippling economic sanctions on Iran and we're going to burden everybody in the world with these and bind them to them by threatening to exclude them from our own markets, which is more valuable to them. So uh, we're looking at you, Germany. You, you got your choice, Iran or us. And if they really fell, faced the choice, the Germans would probably have to choose us. And in the exact same breath, 
The president is saying, ah, but for my buddy, Mr. Xi here, President Xi, you know, we're going to let ZTE off the hook. We're going to uh, relieve him of the sanctions, even though ZTE has been violating the prior set of, of Iranian sanctions. You know, if I'm sort of Germany, I don't know what message I take from that. Uh, maybe we're not authoritarian enough. If we were Xi, we would get the relief, but, but because we're Merkel and you don't like us, you know, we don't, it, but it it really to to be fair about it, it suggests to me that there's not a strong coherence to this strategy. That we can't both do what we did to ZTE and maintain the seriousness of our Iranian sanctions without kind of talking outside of both sides of our mouth. Well, Tomorrow. I think this gets to something pretty interesting about Trump's approach on foreign policy in general, and I'm very curious how this is going to end up applying not only to. China and Chinese entities, but also to the the Arab side of the Gulf, Suzanne, and I, I have a question for you about this. Because when the Treasury Department sanctions entities under these Iran sanctions, they are sanctioning Iranian entities or Iranian-linked entities, and they're saying third parties may not do business with these entities if they go through the U.S. Finan financial system in any way. Um, and so... They have no discretion with regard to the Iranian entities, but in enforcement, they have lots of discretion in terms of whether they're actually going to go after the third country entities that are doing business with these designated individuals and companies and so on. Um, and so they can decide whether to enforce against ZTE or not. They can decide whether to enforce against banks in Dubai or not, right? And um, and they've they released a bunch of new sanctions uh, both before and after Pompeo's speech, including a bunch of things that related specifically to Iranian financial transactions in the UAE. And I'm curious, Suzanne, like the Emiratis, of course, have been very tough on Iran. They really like this tough anti-Iranian policy from the U.S., but they've also made a lot of money doing business with Iran over the years, right? So how do you think that that piece of sanctions tightening fits in? And do you expect that the Trump administration is going to be as tough on the Arab Gulf in sanctions enforcement, or is it going to be more like what it's doing with China? Well, I think, you know, you raise the issue of coherence and the entire policy itself is not terribly coherent yet. Um, the president's decision to withdraw from the deal, withdraw also in air quotes, because of course it wasn't a treaty, so there's no withdrawal mechanism. But to walk away from the deal um, really almost preceded the, the normal steps that would be taken in terms of actually putting in place the bureaucratic mechanisms to reimpose these sanctions, to explain how they were going to be enforced and so there's been a lot of scrambling within various U.S. government agencies over the past couple of weeks and even more scrambling in the private sector to try to get answers from U.S. government agencies. But, you know, I don't I, I think we can expect a certain degree of horse trading because that's how the president himself operates. Um, there is at least some expectation that things have improved in terms of uh, implementation of U.S. sanctions by the, the financial sector in the UAE. But the reality is that, you know, Dubai is really the central bank of Iran. The, the actual central bank is now sanctioned. Iran keeps much of its resources outside the country, and certainly the elites do. And as long as they have access to their capital in Dubai, they're going to be reasonably comfortable. Suzanne, the president, when he ran for office, I mean, ran as a non-interventionist. I mean, hugely critical of the U.S. decision to go into Iraq, 
uh, uh, critical of being in Afghanistan. I mean, this idea of foreign intervention, nation building, regime change, it was the attitude of that's the rest of the world's problem. We don't want to do this. We're going to retrench and go home. I mean, is it overreading, though, what's happening with Iran to say – I mean, there are many people who have, have put up the, the – the, the idea that this is inevitably leads to conflict or that this is all some sort of guise to trigger a conflict and worrying about now that John Bolton is the national security advisor. Is this what we're all about and we're sort of revisiting the march to war of 2003? Is that overly alarmist or is there is there a real threat that we are driving towards a conflict purposefully perhaps? I think it's overly alarmist to insist that this administration is bent on a conflict, precisely for the reason that you suggest, that the president himself has this really powerful political incentive in terms of both the midterms and his own reelection. He doesn't want another war. He's said it on innumerable occasions. He's you know, quantified the amount of money he thinks has been wasted, $7 trillion. Um, uh, in various Middle East conflicts. And I, I think he rightly gauges the mood of the American people that that's simply another, another round of that isn't going to be tolerated. Um, but the difficulty is, of course, he's embraced a strategy that almost inevitably is going to lead to the escalation of tensions in the region and to a certain degree of unpredictability about how things unfold. And, and that's the real danger is that he's set in motion these forces that could put us on a path to a, a new military conflict. Uh, well, speaking of potential military conflicts, let's move to another trouble-free zone of the world, shall we, where we're trying to negotiate. Uh, so the president said this week not only that he thought that it, it was, how do you put it, significantly likely or a significant possibility the summit with North Korea uh, wouldn't happen, and that's okay. And that's said. okay. And that's I okay. I feel better. Um, he said it's okay. What was fascinating about this is that he appeared in, the, in those comments to take the stipulation of denuclearization by North Korea off the table as a negotiating point. Uh, he, you know, previously had said, "I'm willing to give Kim Jong Un." I think he repeated this too. Security guarantees, but we want full denuclearization. Mike Pompeo had been out on the Sunday shows not long ago, explaining it in clear-cut terms. Denuclearization is what we want. Uh, lots of conversations that happened about how unrealistic that was. And now we seem to be saying, no, 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 maybe we'll do something less than that after it appeared that North Korea might be ready to just cancel the whole summit altogether. I mean, it's, it struck me that this is, you know, kind of a perfect example of the sort of, you know, Suzanne used the word horse trading, the sort of negotiating on the fly that Trump is engaging in, where on the one hand, you orient your entire administration around one policy of denuclearization, Right, and then you know, I oh, know it's all up for grabs. Maybe I'll just uh, I'll, I'll I'll tweak that a little bit here. Maybe denuclearization, not so much. Uh, John Bolton says the Libya model. Trump says no, 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 it's not the Libya model. Um, it's the other Libya model. It's the other Libya model. But never mind, we couldn't figure out which Libya model he was talking about, or maybe he didn't know. But I mean, it, it, it's 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 you know, this is I guess my one question is, you know, is this any way to run a summit? <laughs> well, you know, uh, honestly, first off. I'm going to commend President Trump. Okay. If yeah. it's a bad summit, don't go. Don't go. Right. right. You know, so, so, so if 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 your conditions for the summit are you come here planning to denuclearize, and when Kim Jong Un says no, then don't go. And yeah, you know right. that's actually not a bad result in my judgment, and not a bad negotiating tactic. It does, however, reflect. I mean, you know, this is right out of the art of the deal. I keep a lot of balls up in the air, and I never get wet to any deal because they're all impossible until one becomes possible, and I pick the one that actually results in a good deal for me. Um, so 
This is how the president does it. It is not how you or I or any rational human being has ever run government before. Um, but it is very much his style. And uh, if he wanders to the right place, let's commend him for getting to the to the right answer. You know, I, OK, so let's let's accept that framework for the moment that it's a different style of deal. The only nice thing I'll ever say about Trump. By the way. <laughs> OK, noted. Um, so with that caveat, I look, I think the, the issue here is that if you're in business and I don't have uh, a deal with you, but I might get one. There is presumably some level of gain that I'll get from doing any deal with you that I wouldn't otherwise have, right? So I don't know exactly what deal I would be happy with, but at the end of the day, my goal is a deal because I'll have some gain rather than zero gain, right? That doesn't work when you're the president of the United States and you have a certain set of interests that you, at least from the national security perspective, you have to... Uh, achieve or protect or defend. Um, you have red lines. You can lose in a deal from your starting position, which is usually never an outcome of a business deal. Uh, a business deal will leave you at least no worse off. Um, and so I, I think that, okay, maybe that has been his strategy in business. It's a horrific diplomatic strategy for a global power. This is why we shouldn't <laughs> have elected a dealmaker as president, but we did. Right? Okay, yeah, so, okay. so, th so th that's point number one. I guess point number two is that um, what is it that Trump really wants here? Uh, if the Nobel he Peace Prize. <laughs> right. So if he takes his traditional businessman's approach, the objective is a deal, any deal. If you just take his messaging PR, you know, Trump the brand man approach, the objective is any summit, right? And what he can't afford is something that is no summit, no deal, uh, failure, failure to achieve. Um, and therefore, I think there's an, a, a real tension between his desire to get the meeting and maybe get the deal on the one hand and John Bolton's desire to get a series of concrete things, including complete denuclearization. And I, th I expect that as we get closer to the make or break on whether the summit's going to happen, you're going to see that tension erupt. And I think that's why we've seen the shifting language from Pompeo and everybody else about is it total denuclearization? Is it rapid denuclearization? Is it phased denuclearization? Because Bolton has a very specific view which is all the way or nothing. Uh, and Trump just wants to get a summit. Yeah. And it strikes me too, I mean, Suzanne, that and you have, I kind of keep coming back to this question. You can probably answer it better than anybody, that we saw the North Koreans pull away. And we were all asking the question, you know, is this because of what Bolton said? Or is it because of Trump pulling out of the Iran deal? I mean, do the North Koreans, do you think, look at – the way we behaved in the Iran negotiation and think to themselves, we cannot possibly cut a deal with these people. They'll never stick to it. Or do they kind of cabin that off from as, you know, that's that's Iran's problem. We're negotiating something different, which seems to me like the way you could logically think about Trump. It's like, look, every deal is is unique. It's binary. There's no cohesive policy. So he reneged on Iran, whatever. We're talking about North Korea. 
I think it's hard to anticipate what's in the minds of North Korean leaders, um, but fundamentally, they don't start with any level of trust or confidence in the United States leadership. So I'm not sure that anything Trump does or doesn't do is going to either increase or decrease that. I think, to my mind, the bigger question of the connection between the two is to, you know, to what extent did Trump's presumption that he was getting to yes with the North Koreans, that he had made this major breakthrough inform his decision to jump off the cliff with the JCPOA? Did it, you know, mm. sort of incline him toward this idea that, you know, if you just talk tough, that in fact you can get somewhere? And of course, wasn't clear on May 8th when he made his announcement that that was in fact the case, and it's even less clear now. That 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 resonates with me too, because I, I confess that when Trump first went down the path of doing the summit, it seemed to me, highly disingenuous. It's, you know, they agree on the spur of the moment when the South Korean national security advisor is in the White House telling him that Kim Jong-un made a summit offer. You would imagine the president saying, yeah, sure, great, yeah, whatever, you know, in your dreams, you know, maybe one day. But instead he just says, sure, that sounds great. Everyone's shocked. They can't believe that he actually did this. Um, you know, I thought for a while that he says, this is, oh, this is actually kind of a brilliant strategy. He'll say yes. The North Koreans will never agree to it, and he'll look like the bigger person. Now we're further down the road, though, and he seems to really want it. And to tomorrow's point, I mean, now he's really committed, and I think that, that us capitulating on what we're willing to negotiate, oh, no, 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 we'll back off the denuclearization aspect of it, is it underscores how much he needs just something to come out of this, even though nobody realistically expects they're actually going to come to a major agreement. So so I'm going to tie this back to something Tamara said earlier about uh, the Russian investigation, which is, for me, the ultimate question here is how his base is going to react. And, of course, that's what matters to him is fundamentally his appearance of strength to a group of people who have come to adore him in ways that reinforce everything that he thinks about his own leadership capabilities, right? The Iran deal fits that perfectly because they hated Iran. They hated Obama. They hated the deal. He promised to nuke it. He nuked it. Heck yeah. That's all in the same way. But in in this instance, they're not big fans of North Korea, right? So they'll buy the de- they'll buy the deal if you know, strongman Trump gets denuclearization and maybe frees all those North Koreans and makes them part of South Korea and, and gets rid of Kim Jong-un. If the deal is, you know, a summit that looks good and is more in favor of Kim Jong-un than it is of Trump, that's a real risk for Trump with his base. And I think he knows that. I, I, I think that his brilliance is his understanding of what that base wants. And as he gets closer to it, if he perceives that going through with it will actually make him look bad with the 35% of the people in America who think he's God, he will pull the plug. That's, That's a- my, my, pers- my prediction. I have no basis for knowing that, by the way. It's, it, no, it's, it's interesting. I'm not sure I would agree that that's what the base would find upsetting. Maybe. I, you know, if he is spurned, then that's embarrassing in front of the base. But if he makes a deal that um, when you balance out the interests, you know, that, for example, requires uh, American forces to withdraw from the Korean Peninsula, I think a lot of a lot of Americans, not only on the right, 
would probably be okay with that because they don't actually understand what why our troops are on the Korean Peninsula in the first place. They're generally not in a great mood about foreign troop deployments. And Trump, of course, has long been hostile to foreign troop deployments, especially the long-term ones like Korea and Europe. And so I, I'm not sure it will hurt him with the base if he makes a bad deal for the United States. The costs to the United States, to our global primacy, to our relationships with our allies will come over time. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the electorate is going to pay attention to that. All right. Uh, let's talk about the stories that we did not get to discuss this week. The list oh, there is there weren't no- any of those. The list is long, but not as long as in past weeks. <laughs> uh, so lightning around here. Russia says foreign troops need to leave Syria. Iran says... Pfft. Yeah, (laughs) I I thought this was a funny one because it was, first of all, it was the first time that the Russians actually said anything about foreign forces needing to leave Syria. And the Iranian government reaction was immediate, which was like, well, we're here with the Syrian government's consent, so I don't know what your problem is. Enough of you. (laughs) Put a sock in it, Vlad. A new story about George Nader, Elliot Broidy, and an Israeli technology company, Arab States, and influence peddling at Trump Tower. (laughs) 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 Maybe significant, maybe not. I'm shocked. Shocked (laughs) to find that there's influence peddling. I've lost track of how many meetings there were. Look, it's a fundamental thing. Right. The the Trump people had no idea what they were doing. They took every meeting that was offered. They had no idea that they really shouldn't. This is just item number 17 on the list. We took a lot of meetings, Paul. There's a lot of meetings, a lot of meetings going on. There there was also just so much swampiness in that story. Like, you know, it really was. I mean, it really was pay to play with the president. Right. But. But the drivers of it were this RNC vice chair, now resigned, Elliot Broidy, and this wacky Lebanese-American uh, businessman Nader. who's just looking to make a buck any which way he can. The new, and, the new Forrest Gump of the Relafair Ruse, he's taking Carter Page's role. Right. So the carelessness of the Trump campaign is notable, but the the recklessness of these uh, swamp creatures was really the, the shocking part of the story. Uh, so much for a trade war with China. The Trump administration has suspended steel tariffs. Horse trading, steel trading, shocked. It's all shocked on the table, baby. To find that there's no no tra- no trade war going on. <laughs> I I just wonder how Steve Mnuchin kind of figures out in the morning whether he's nice guy or a tough guy. Yeah, it must be hard on any given day. Yeah, well, it, it's whatever Luis tells him he's going to be that day. <laughs> right. Is she is she Cruella Deville or is she Gwyneth Paltrow? Exactly. Right? <laughs> Uh, Nicolas Maduro holds a sham election in Venezuela, then the US, then expels the U.S. ambassador. Not surprising at all, right? I mean, not surprising. Though honestly, this is one of those things that is um, uh, we have on lawfare a little thing while Nero fiddles, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the really important things that are happening in the world while Nero, i.e., the president, is fiddling about all of his self-aggrandizing narcissistic viewpoints. And this is this is important. This is an entire country that is going down the tubes at the behest of a strong man. And the utter lack of American engagement in trying to solve this is horrific. Though they've made lots of statements. Yeah, I will say that the the number of OAS members who have spoken out collectively and individually against this sham election, I think is a bit heartening. That is great. And if only the U.S. were in there pitching with them and to part of a strategy to actually 
find a way to move Maduro out. That's multilateralism, Paul. Well, we don't like that. I know. That. That's right. Well, but Trump will start to care as the loss of both Venezuelan exports and increasingly Iranian oil exports begins to hit at the gas tanks and Ooh, gas pumps for Americans. Will that be before the midterms, Suzanne? It's, it's already happening. So it, 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 he, and he's already tweeted about it. Uh, Trump uses unsecured phones for everything. Again, ooh, not ooh. surprising. Can we say Hillary's email? <laughs> but her email. <laughs> and Jared Kushner, you remember him, finally has a security clearance. He's a real boy. Does he get SCI? Uh, I don't know. Is he going to make Middle East peace now? <laughs> he can finally make that Middle East peace. Oh, and to connect two of our stories we're not talking about, the AP story about uh, George Nader and this... George Nader reporting deep in that AP story that his uh, princes in the in the in the Arab Gulf states called Jared the clown prince. The clown prince. Yeah, Aww. so sad. Here's one thing I do want to suggest to the intrepid intrepid reporter: um, FOIA the decision memo on Jared's clearance. Oh. I want to know oh. if there are any exceptions to it. I hope no Ooh, reporters are listening good to this question. podcast. Okay, uh, let's move on to object lessons. Uh, I'll go first. Um, my object, I can't bring it here, unfortunately, or fortunately, perhaps, because it's a sinkhole at the White House. <laughs> so there was a lot of speculation. There was pictures of it. The White House press corps was tweeting about this this week. There's a part of the lawn where literally it's just sort of caving in. Uh, uh, and some people were wondering, you know, is this a sign of end times? Is it just the rain we've been having? I have an alternate theory. Yes. Which is, do you remember in the second term of the Obama administration, there was a lot of construction going on? At the White House and a lot of earth being moved out and there were barricades that were up around. Oh, yeah. I mean, so I'd done some reporting around this, which was somewhat speculative, but I think it was fairly well informed that there was an effort afoot to rebuild the underground facilities and the bunker and the underground control center at the White House. And also even there was some speculation that they were trying to develop a way to evacuate the president from the Oval without ever having to move him outside in the event of a chemical attack. So you could just sort of trapdoor him out the Oval office floor rather than take him uh, out the colonnade. And there was even some talk about uh, in 2012, and, or sorry, 13, that when the president, or if it would have been President Romney, would have to relocate to the executive office building for some months during a remodel of the White House. And I'm just wondering if all the construction underground got screwed up and they went too far, and whoosh, it's caving Ooh, in, baby. This is this is this is Nicholas Cage's national national yeah. treasure. It, it That's is. some deep state for you, right That's, there. That's that is some deep state. Although <laughs> somebody hired the wrong Occam's contractor. <laughs> Let's remember that when Washington was first built, Constitution Avenue, what's now Constitution Avenue, was a canal. Okay, There is a river, a natural (laughs) river that flows down from Capitol Hill right past the White House into the Potomac. And it's still there. It's just underground. A river runs through it. (laughs) Isn't that called Tiber Creek? Yeah. Yes. There you go. Uh, The Roman reference. Indeed. (laughs) There's some trivia for you this weekend. All right, Paul, would you like to share your object? Yes, I have an object. It is a newly minted challenge coin commemorating the summit between President Trump and Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un, right? And uh, so the mottos I take from this are, don't count your summits before they hatch, right? And uh, uh, Vinny Vidi Vici, yeah, we came, we saw, and our (laughs) coin conquered. Uh, it uh, It is a remarkable object. Uh, with, uh, I mean, it actually says Supreme Leader. Kim it Jong-un. says Supreme Leader on yeah, it. Yeah, I know. So yeah. I'm like, 
who gives who accepts that as the title for anybody in yeah. America? It's but, pretty amazing. But you should it, buy them now because yeah, they're I know they, they're going to be. So I, I'm wondering who's how many do they mint? Who's giving them out? And can I get one for myself? Yeah. Okay, so first of all, I think it's only a couple hundred, which makes them a major collector's item, presumably designed to be given to the people who actually accompany the delegation to Singapore, mm-hmm. right? But let's imagine for a moment that there is no summit. This challenge coin will be even, even more, more valuable. valuable. So I think it's just an incredible business opportunity by the president. And He's going to sell them to his supporters. Give us $10,000 to our re-election campaign. <laughs> get a challenge coin. <laughs> for the summit that never happened. Are they real gold? Because that would be even better, no. like merging of the streams. No. Buy your gold now. <laughs> uh, tomorrow, what's your object? So my object is is actually a written uh, document. It is an article in The New Yorker um, by Elias Mohana, who's a literature professor at Brown University, uh, a longtime blogger under Kifa Nakbi. I've uh, been reading him for years, and I know a lot of other Middle East folks have, too. Um This is a great article about the history of the Arabic language and uh, the history of pre-Islamic Arabia, stories that are being uncovered through rock inscriptions that have been found all over the Arabian Peninsula and in uh, Jordan and Iraq. And basically, you know, the discovery of pre-Islamic inscriptions that were written in a different alphabet, but when read aloud, are recognizably Arabic, and they tell us something about what life was like during the time Muhammad lived. Um, It's a fascinating tale that combines archaeology and linguistics and geology, which are three of my geeky loves, um, and, uh, and a wonderfully written piece, and so I commend it to all of you. Fantastic. Well, check it out. Uh, and you can do that now because that's the end of the podcast. Oh, another hour gone, you guys. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page somewhere on the internet. Ben is off in Austin, definitely not transferring our show page anywhere. Seriously, what's up with that, man? He's know. eating some awesome Tex-Mex awesome food. Awesome Tex-Mex and having margaritas while he forgets all about our show page. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember Remember to leave us a rating and review. It really helps other people find the podcast, and we appreciate it. Our audio engineer this week, once again, Quinta Jurassic. Giving up some good names for Spygate, too. Thank you very much. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Donald Trump and the spy who bugged me. Oh, <laughs> it's not my best. As long as it's not Duran Duran singing the song. Wait, what, what song was that? They, they did um, "View to a Kill." "View to a Kill" is one of the best James Bond songs. No, oh my god, it's so good. Okay, really, like best James Bond song? Maybe "View to a Kill." No. Uh, oh god. No, the Living the Daylights. Song. No, Skyfall. Adele. Oh, Skyfall's great. Okay, I would definitely rank that up there. But Paul McCartney and Wings. Suzanne, yeah. do you have yeah. a favorite Bond yeah. theme oh, song? I'm stumped. Our audio, our piano, actually, our music is really performed by Sophia Yan. I'm pretty confident Sophia Yan. I want to know what she thinks the top Bond song is because I bet she's got an opinion. She's probably got an opinion on that. I'm sure she agrees with me. On behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman Wittes and our special guests, Suzanne Maloney and Paul Rosenzweig, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.